Well, I want to jump in uh, with our series as we continue uh, with Journey. And if you're new to our congregation or perhaps you've missed the last few weeks, um, and I encourage you to watch on videocast. I was down in the Dominican Republic uh, two weeks ago, way up in the mountains, very, very, uh, very far away up in the mountains of the DR, watching uh, that Sunday night our guest speaker here from Maple Grove Covenant on videocast. I mean, it's the technology that we have today. So for those who are listening or watching on our videocast or listening online, I want to welcome you as well uh, as we are in this series and following Jesus, really, in a sense, you and I uh, walking and journeying with Jesus as he makes his way to Jerusalem, as we uh, look forward to next week in the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, uh, and we've been following him geographically as he makes his route down from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum, makes his way into Samaria. We talked about that last week. And then has to actually take a detour down the Jordan Valley because uh, the people in Samaria won't allow him to come into their country. And Samaria is directly to Jerusalem, so it's a, it's a detour. And through this whole journey, we see him um, uh, performing miracles, uh, healing the, the blind beggars on the way, also teaching lessons to his disciples, talking about the fact that he is going to be killed, that he's given his life, and we continue this morning. Johnny Depp is one of my favorite actors. It seems like any role he plays, he just absolutely kills it. And, I, and uh, he and I are very similar in age, and I've, I've been watching him since the time he was on TV back in the 90s on 21 Jump Street to, uh, there we go, Pirates of the Caribbean to Public Enemies to Willy Wonka. Uh, also, uh, the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland, unbelievable performance. Yet in an interview, I found it very curious what he said, talking about life after death. He said, after life, it's nothing more than dirt and worms. Depth does not believe in a life after death. It's interesting. What do you believe? Pastor and author John Orberg tells a story in one of his books about a friend of his that actually was a denominational official in rural Minnesota. And what he would do, actually, he would go into rural communities that didn't have churches, didn't have churches to do funerals. So he would, he would actually officiate these funerals. And, and what he did is that he'd ride around rural, uh, especially southern, southwestern and southeastern Minnesota, drive around with an undertaker and a hearse. And they would go to these communities and perform funerals. And one time, uh, after uh, a long day, uh, Orberg's friend was tired. Uh, Undertaker was driving the hearse, so uh, Orberg's friend thought, you know what, I'm just going to go in the back. There's nothing, nothing back there and go down for, lay down for a nap. So that's what he did. Laid down plenty of room in the back to lay down uh, fully extended for a nice nap. They pull into a gas station. Back in those days, those gas stations had actually gas station attendants, if you can imagine. And the attendant would come out, fill the air of the car, etc. But this attendant came out, and he was like, kind of hesitated because he sees a hearse. So anyways, puts some air in the tires, and then he starts to pump the gas. And he's kind of freaked out, Orberg says, because he is pumping gas, and he looks in. It's a hearse, and there's a body in the back. But he continues to pump the gas. Well, Orberg's friend wakes up. His eyes open. He sits up. He looks over. And he sees the gas attendant. And because he's a pastor, he wants to be nice, he knocks on the window and waves at him. <laughs> and, and 
And uh, the attendant took like the, the gas thing, he just threw it, gas spraying everywhere. And Orprich's friend said he never saw anyone run so fast in their life. Well, frankly, we're here today because we're going to actually talk about rising from the dead in a sense, but in a real sense, in terms of Lazarus. And Lazarus is an important story for us. But can you imagine, can you imagine for a moment, if you were to, to go to a graveyard and perhaps a family member or a friend had just been uh, laid to rest, and yet you see them walking towards you in their funeral clothes. What that would do to you. How shocked you would be. And I think we're so used to the story about Lazarus, we don't understand the shock and just how riveting and how compelling this story. Obviously, this is a, a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but let's dig into the story. If you have a Bible this morning, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Actually, 1 through 6. And yes, I am wearing readers. Yeah. If you weren't here last week, uh, I was uh, reading from my large print Bible, and um, I couldn't read a couple of verses, so I made an uh, appointment with an optometrist and got some readers. But as I was hesitating and, and trying to find the ver- and try to actually read the verse, it was like 20 seconds. It felt like two minutes because I couldn't read it. And all I, all I hear is my good Fred Brownie right here in the second row saying, I think he's lost. <laughs> you actually can hear in the video cast, so. Yeah, I wasn't lost. I couldn't read. All right. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. By the way, this is one of the last stops in the journey. This is one of the last major events before he comes into Jerusalem. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So right away, in a matter of two verses, it says Lazarus was sick. Lazarus was sick. He must have been really, really sick, like on the uh, point of death. I was at a restaurant this past week, and there was a guy there um, that had just uh, had a funeral for his wife seven days earlier, and he was just distraught. And I was overhearing his conversation, and he, he shared with somebody that she had a bad case of the flu, and that flu turned into uh, pneumonia, and she passed away. And absolutely distraught. And that, that Lazarus is, is that sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No. It happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Okay, does that sound like a friend? Uh, my friend Lazarus is sick. By the way, uh, scholars believe that uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were such best friends with Jesus, even more so than Peter, James, and John. They weren't disciples, but in many cases they were. They were very, very close. And if your friend was sick, would you say, ah, okay, he's sick? I'm just going to wait a couple extra days. Then, then, I'll, then I'll get there. It'd be like, it'd be like the, in fact, if you uh, will jump ahead to verse 30 and 32, and we see right here what happens. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where, Mary, Mar- where Martha excuse me, met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So he followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a very interesting 
story that while Jesus delays, Lazarus, his best friend, dies. And again, it's like, you know, if you had a friend, perhaps it's in the middle of winter, it's cold, it's minus 15 degrees, it's dark, it's nighttime, and you have engine problems, and you're on the side of the road, and your good friend, you know who lives just a few miles away, he has a tow truck. You call him up, you say, you know what, can you help me? My, my, my car's not going anywhere, I'm kind of in the middle of nowhere, can, can you come over with your tow truck? It'd be him like saying, yeah, um, I'm watching Monday Night Football right now, and uh, it's in the first quarter, and once the game gets done, uh, I'll, come and, I'll come and get you. Hangs up the phone and pops another can of beer. Yeah, that kind of delay. It's, it's interesting that the fact that Jesus waited, that Jesus waited. And before I dig into this, let me pray. God in heaven, I pray your blessing upon this time. As we look at the delay of Jesus, and as we look at um, this story, this remarkable story. Pray your blessing upon each of our lives, and as we're here, and maybe some of us have not been to church in a while, that they would feel welcome. That this is a community that loves and reaches out to all people. And no matter who we are, that we're accepted by you and accepted by each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Okay. But, you know, Jesus waits, and he tells us why he waits, because, of course, it's going to show his glory. That he is the Son of God. It's remarkable to actually have the power to bring back somebody from death into life. So it's definitely going to give Jesus Christ glory and also show his incredible power. But also I would add this. I've been thinking about this story all week. Each day this week, I can honestly say I've been thinking about this story and that question, why does he wait? Because I think there's a side of it that we need to come in terms of that God's timeline, God's timing, the way God moves is different from you and I. And oftentimes, he tends to move slower than us Americans, right? We want it right now. And I would say waiting is one of the hardest things that we have to experience. We do not like to wait. Our patience is typically very, very limited and there's times where we cry out to God. It's like, why don't you move? Why, why are you waiting, in a sense, two extra days when you have the power to do this right now? It reminds me of a, friend, a couple that's a, a friends of mine that for seven years, they battled infertility. They tried everything possible. We would pray with them, spend time with them. And it was so heartbreaking to see. And yet after seven years, the prayers were answered, in fact, of them having a beautiful baby girl. Another group of friends, same thing, battled infertility, tried all the medical procedures, and it didn't work, had some miscarriages, and finally they said, this is not God's will for us, so we're going to go into adoption. And they adopted two amazing, beautiful boys. And as I talked to, as I talked to both couples over time, they told me this, so, you know, even in the midst of the struggle of waiting, even in the midst of tears, even in the midst of being so frustrated with God, being frustrated with our lives, they said, we never felt so close to God, and we never felt so close to each other. And I know some of you are in the midst of waiting right now. And that song, that, what I just said sounds sort of like hallmarkish, like a little uh, greeting card or something like that. But it is in the waiting it is in the waiting that we can grow closer to God. And I think one of the most difficult verses to swallow is this. God's ways are not our ways. His timeline 
is not our timeline. And I think the, the, the challenge of our worldview is that we see our, our lives, and, and, and when we have to wait, we, we realize that our, our life, our world, our reality is not me-centered. It's uh, not anthropocentered. It's actually theocentered. It's God-centered, that God is the center of our lives. When we have to wait, we're reminded again, it's God who's at the center of our lives and our reality. So your first fill in the blank is, and I'm going to share three questions this morning. First is, why did Jesus wait? And I'm going to provide responses to each one. Next one, as we look at verses 33 through 35. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing, I want you to circle that word, with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. And by the way, that whole anger and it was actually agitation and uh, being disturbed, uh, there's a lot of debate about why that is. I'm not, I don't have time this morning to get through that. 34, wherever have you put him, he asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. Why does Jesus weep when he knows that he is going to bring Lazarus back from the tomb in moments? Why does he weep? I mean, he is, he is God, but he's also a man, right? And men are not supposed to weep, right? Right? Well, GQ did an article on this. Let me pull it up. Written by a female writer for GQ. She writes this about men crying. There's rules. There's rules for, men's cry, for public crying. It's okay for guys to cry if you're in extreme pain, like, say, a piano was dropped from a 50-story window on your foot. If you're going to cry from pain, it has, to be, it has to be at least an 8 on the pain scale. It's okay to cry at certain works of art or film. For instance, if you don't get misty-eyed at Toy Story 3, you're a monster. <laughs> well, I didn't cry at that, so I'm a monster, I guess, apparently. Also... It's almost weird if you don't sob the first time you hold your newborn baby. No shame in that, bro. It's, it's definitely weird if you sob during a sports event, although you can cry if you are actually one of the athletes out there on the field. But even then, you should cry only, cry only if you win. And if you're just a fan, the rule here is much simpler. Never, ever cry. I'm not sure if I agree with that. But, uh, but we see with Jesus that, that question, why does he weep? Why does he weep? You know, in, in, in verse 35, uh, it's, it's the shortest verse in the entire Bible, but actually in the Greek, it's actually a, a longer character with that. But I, I think that as, as we look at Jesus weeping, I, I think for us is to understand that he, again, he's a man, he's human. There's only a couple times in the Gospel of John where John kind of pulls back the curtain to show the humanity of Jesus. He, John's gospel is really about the deity, the divinity of Jesus, that the fact that he is God in the flesh. Uh, John 1.14, God incarnate, uh, that God put on flesh, flesh and blood, and came into our neighborhood. That's the paraphrase for that verse. But that he actually came to uh, be one of us. And John talks about that quite a bit. In fact, that, that God in the flesh is found in Jesus Christ. But a couple of times, he pulls the curtain back, and we see this humanity of Jesus, just like last week in John chapter 4, where Jesus is walking, he makes his way to Sakaar, and, and he meets this woman at the well, but Jesus is so exhausted, the word is weary. 
It means to be, to be, you have nothing left. And he has to sit down. And I love the fact that we have a Savior who weeps. As it says in the Psalms, God is close to the brokenhearted. Don't think for a second that as you come into the times of your life where you're grieving and you're uh, crying, whatever that is for you, but don't think for a second that God is distant, that God is somewhere else in the cosmos. He is close to you. He's with you. He's weeping with you because he knows exactly what that's like. Why does Jesus weep? I think a few answers to that. I think he sees uh, Mary and Martha crying. I think he sees the wailing. See, in America, we kind of hold back our cry. Our cries are typically are a little bit uh, softer and quieter. You go to the Middle East, they let it out. You've been in certain, uh, certain uh, geographical locations around the world. They have a different way with grief. They just let it out. And they're wailing. And I think that pathos does something to Jesus. It gets to his heart. He hurts with them. I also think that one of the reasons why Jesus weeps is because that he, he sees uh, what death does to, to people and to families. And I think he weeps because of that as well. And I could go on some other reasons as too, but I think that that's important. And the word wept in your teaching notes means to have deep compassion. Deep compassion. Like deep compassion down really into the, the soul, the center of your life. And that's what Jesus feels when he weeps. It's not just a little uh, small tear out of his eye. He feels it in the inside. The original word lends itself to that. What's interesting is that the, the Greeks, the people in the day that didn't believe in God, would have never, ever thought that their God or gods ever cried. In fact, they believed they were incapable of emotion. Isn't it great that you and I have a God who has emotions? Amen? Yes, he has emotions, joy and happiness, but also grief and sadness. That he is with you in those moments. Next. It's an important question for us. How does this story matter? You're like, okay, great story on, on Lazarus. Cool, you know, some fun, you know, interesting facts about what happens there. But where do, how does it matter in the zip codes of where I live or where I work or the school I go to? Why does this story matter? Why, what what um, import does it have for my life? Let's take a look at verses 25 and 26 and also 43 through 45. 25 through 26, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Jesus conquers the grave. He conquers death with his life. Do you believe this, Martha? And we jump over to 43. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet Bound in grave clothes, his face unwrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. What a miracle. What a miracle. Lazarus comes back to life. How many of us in this room right now need something that's dead to come back to life? That's why this story matters. Not simply a physical resurrection, but the resurrection in our lives. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, 
He's in the resurrection business. I can imagine if Jesus lived here in Maple Grove, and let's say he hung out with uh, some guys from our church, they go over to Crave, and uh, these guys are new to Jesus, and they're hanging out in Crave, and while they're waiting for their lunch, they kind of go around and, and share like guys do. What do you do for a living? One guy says realty. Another guy uh, says, I'm in pharmaceutical sales. Another guy says, I'm in radiology. And they turn to Jesus and say, what, what kind of business are you in? I'm in the resurrection business. And I'm sure they'd be like, what? <laughs> but that's, that's what he is. He's in the resurrection business. He brings life to that which is dead. And in a room like this, there are marriages right now that are teetering on death, that really need resurrection life. At the prayer for you this morning, as you look at verses 25 and 26, that Jesus Christ is the resurrection of life, that you say, Jesus, I need you to bring life back. And maybe it's not dead, but it's, it's, it's just not what it was. And you desperately need life back in your marriage. Or how many of you, it's your finances. I mean, your finances perhaps were, were dead a long time ago. And you're like, Jesus, I need you to bring life to my finances. And we offer a class called Financial Peace University that uh, Dwayne Poff leads. He would love to meet with you and talk about that class. Or maybe it's your children. Maybe your relationship with your kids, whether they're, they're really young or old, that that relationship has been dead for some time. Or perhaps it's heading in that direction. And you're like, Jesus, I need you to bring back this relationship I need you to bring life to it. Or maybe it's your faith. Maybe for the longest time you've been coming to church or been in a Bible study, but really your faith isn't alive anymore. It's been dead for some time. And this Lenten season is a perfect time to say to Jesus, Jesus, I, I need you to be the resurrection and the life for my faith. To bring, it, bring, me, bring me back that I've hit a plateau, or I've hit a, sort of a desert, ex, desert experience, and I need you to bring life back to my faith, to my prayer life, to reading scripture, sharing my faith with others. Or maybe it's self-image. For the longest time, you, you grew up perhaps in a household, or maybe it was just simply your own, the words in your own head, that for the longest time, you slowly put to death your perspective, your uh, view on who you are. That your pessimism and your negativity, as you looked in the mirror each morning, slowly brought death to how you look at yourself. And for you, it's to say to Jesus, I need you to bring back to life how you view me and how I ought to view myself. That I'm a child of God. I am the salt and light of the earth. Or maybe it's direction in life. The three questions that we ask typically, uh, either consciously or subconsciously, is who am I, where am I going, and how am I going to get there? And maybe for you, your, your direction right now, you're not quite sure. You feel like you're, you're going nowhere. And as a result of that, you feel pain, and you feel disillusionment, and you feel like, God, geez, I need help, God. Help. Maybe you need God to bring life to the direction and the mission, the purpose of your life, where you just cry out and say, God, give me a purpose. Share with me the direction you want me to go with my life. Well, there's a story of the famous Dutch painter, Vincent van Gogh. I love van Gogh. He's one of my favorite uh, painters, impressionist uh, painter. And I have actually a, a self-portrait he did in my townhouse. And van Gogh's story is, 
he grew up in a Christian household, and yet he despised Christianity. His parents were Christians. He said, I want nothing to do with it. And he went on uh, on his own, moved out. And even though he became a famous painter and was selling a lot of his paintings and making good money, he was a manic depressive and also uh, would destroy aspects, aspects of his life. Self-mutilation, if you know the story of Vincent Van Gogh, got to a point where he is hitting bottom, even though his paintings were so popular. And later in his life, by the grace of God, that sort of death that he was experiencing in his life, this depression, the darkness, began to open himself up to the grace of God. The depression didn't go away, obviously, but, but the grace of God began to flood his life. He began to embrace that truth that his parents taught him long ago. And that truth of God, of Christ, began to take color in Van Gogh's painting. It was the color of yellow. The best-kept secret of Van Gogh's life is that more and more, as he began to follow Jesus Christ, his paintings began to have a gradual increase of the color of yellow because Van Gogh believed that yellow was the best color that defined the grace, the warmth, and the beauty of God. And the painting that you see right there, this is the raising of Lazarus towards the end of Van Gogh's life. And it is blindingly yellow. Yellow everywhere. In fact, if you look at the painting very close, Van Gogh puts his own face on Lazarus. If you look really carefully, he puts his own face on Lazarus because he believed that story was his story. In your teaching notes, I have this, these two words, happen and happens. Because when it comes to the stories that we go through, like for example, Lazarus, yes, this happened. This was a historical story that happened. But this is a story that happens in our lives. And Van Gogh believed that. That was a story that was happening in his life, that he was a part of the story. Yellow tells the whole story. Life can, can begin all over again because of the truth of God's grace and love. And each of us, whether with actual yellows or metaphorical yellows, can begin to paint our lives with a new hope and a new beginning. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you that you are in the resurrection business. That you bring life from those areas of our life that are dead. That you instill in us the, the beauty of hope and new beginnings. And I pray for each person that's here, Lord, wherever they're at, you know exactly their story. That they would experience the resurrection power found in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Everybody said?